Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. This week we look at nuclear reactors for sale in New South Wales and conclude the question of nuclear power for Australia by separating our newts from our neutrons. But first up, here's the news. Swish that tail. Humanity's dream of mind-control rats is coming true at last. Harvard University researchers have hooked a brain-computer interface on a human to a computer-to-brain interface on a rat. The result is that the human can make the rat's tail move. At the human-brain-computer end, they have an electroencephalograph headset that reads electrical brain activity. A computer recognises the change in brain waves that happens when a person looks at a particular pattern on a screen and sends a signal to the rat's computer brain machine. Being able to recognise when someone is looking at a particular pattern is Steady State Visual Evoked Potential, SSVEP, and the software gets it right 94% of the time. At the rat computer brain end, they have some new hardware that uses ultrasound to stimulate the part of the rat's brain that controls its tail. One and a half seconds after the human looks at the trigger pattern, the rat's tail moves. Transcranial sonification of focused ultrasound delivers sound waves to precise areas of the brain and have been used to burn out brain tumours. The next steps will be to connect humans to humans and to reverse the interface so that the rat controls the human. I bet Stellark is already working on it. The paper, Non-Invasive Brain-to-Brain Interface, BBI, establishing functional links between two brains was published in the Public Library of Science, PLOS One. The video will be embedded on diffusionradio.com. <music> nuclear Power for Australia? A conference appropriately held near the anniversary of the nuclear bomb dropped on Hiroshima and at the Powerhouse Museum. In the first session, Dr Ron Cameron spoke about the use of nuclear energy around the world. There were issues such as security of energy supply in countries that don't have their own sources of fossil fuels and are unfavourable for renewable energy. The Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, estimates that there are 100 years of uranium deposits left in the ground before we run out and have to use something else. Nuclear power stations are expensive to build and have a lifetime of 60 years before being decommissioned and stored. Liberal markets are bad for long-term investments like nuclear power, as opposed to monopoly control of a market by one power supplier, which is optimum. A nuclear power plant can take 15 years to build, but a wind power station can be up in six months. Italy voted in a referendum to get rid of nuclear power, while the Russian Federation has doubled its plans for nuclear energy. Public support for nuclear power in the USA and the UK is the highest it's ever been. The costs of nuclear power business were discussed, including the need to keep backup power plants in reserve in case you have to remove power plants from the power grid. This can be prohibitively expensive if you have built large power plants for economies of scale, so smaller plants are more commercially viable. 
Professor Tony Owen suggested that Australia should be adding value to our uranium exports by processing the fuel here before we ship it, and that we should be taking waste back to Australia to store forever in the desert for a fee. However, not only are free markets a problem for the business of nuclear energy, but democratic governments change environmental policies too quickly, which means more time and money for compliance, which can discourage investors. Democratic governments also tend to be very conservative, as the short-term political cycle doesn't favour long-term investment and strategy. We were introduced to the banana principle. Build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone. B-A-N-A-N-A. Someone asked if nuclear power isn't very thirsty for water, and this was declared a myth because 45% of a nuclear power station's cooling can come from seawater, if they're built on the beach. This assumes the public will accept nuclear power stations on the coast. We were told it's important to set up a regulatory structure for nuclear energy to give the public confidence. We were instructed the right way to manage public perception to gain acceptance by discussing the problems with nuclear power over and over until people were bored with them. We were told how 65% of people wrongly believe that nuclear power plants can go up in a nuclear explosion instead of just a very radioactive conventional explosion. We were also told that more people have died from solar power than from nuclear power. These numbers were achieved by counting the number of builders who'd fallen off roofs during construction of solar panels and power plants, but leaving out the number of people who've fallen off roofs and construction sites for nuclear power plants and for coal, oil and gas power stations. At the conference, I met Howard Eastwood, who wasn't one of the speakers, but a sponsor of the conference. He's the founder of New England Nuclear Energy, a shop front in Glen Innes dedicated to selling the idea that the law should be changed to allow nuclear power for New South Wales. We have an education research centre to explain to our community uh, about nuclear energy because of the amount of misinformation that is uh, happening. So we get research papers uh, from different areas and print up and put on show and on display the actual facts done by the research people and not by journalists. <laughs> Sorry about that. And uh, so the issue of waste, uh, which uh, when we went to London last year for the World uh, Nuclear Conference in London, the Canadians at CANDU uh, announced the no more nuclear waste as such. They've found by mixing plutonium with thorium you can burn the two with very little, and it burns that heavy metal waste up. And you're left with only a, a small amount of waste left over, which can be recycled again. And what you do have as left over has a very much reduced half-life to the 100,000, 200 year that plutonium has, you know, 200,000 years. Mm. Sorry, do you know what the waste is that does come out of the thorium reactor? And they're actinides, what they're called actinides. I can't tell you, it's, they're rare earth type elements with shorter lifespans, which you normally can't find in the earth today because it's been too long and their half-life has been used. The same as plutonium, you don't mine plutonium. Uh, it has already basically this. And you must remember that all these uh, radioactive elements are on a progressive scale losing their energy and they end up as lead. So they're all on a decreasing scale. 
So that's why the original periodic table misses certain elements because their radioactivity has changed them into another element and so on down the line. So when it comes to thorium, thorium, it won't fission by itself. You can't build a nuclear power station out of thorium. You have to inject neutrons into it to get it to react. So the Canadians, well, you've got this plutonium, this artificial heavy element, which is heavier than uranium, emitting these things. We don't know what to do with them, only bury them way down in the ground. So mix a little bit of this with the thorium, which is emitting the neutron, and suddenly you can have this reaction. Now, I'm telling you this in that format from a layperson's point of view, so you'll understand. Then uh, that is what the ideal is. And, of course, what we've heard here at this conference is you build so many normal nuclear power stations using uranium, then you get the plutonium generated, and from that you then burn it with the thorium one, so you get a cycle going around of re reburning. Now, those countries like England, particularly, and America, who have had nuclear power stations for a long time, have a supply of plutonium, especially when they decommissioned their atom bombs and nuclear weapons after the Cold War. And the email I had this year, earlier this year, from the English um, um, Nuclear um, Association, indicates they've got 500 years of uh, plutonium in energy form to use up without buying any more uranium. So that will change the whole energy mix of nations, especially in the Western world. So where the uranium sales are going is to the Asian markets because they need to build up their source of plutonium to start to do the recycling. And of course these are what they call breeder reactors a bit. So what you consume, you actually end up with a bit more to start again. So we have cheap, unlimited power on the horizon. That was Howard Eastwood, founder of New England Nuclear Energy, who advocates for New South Wales state legislation to be changed to grant him permission to import a ready-made $50 million small modular nuclear power station to Glen Innes, New England in New South Wales. His organisation was opened by the New South Wales Liberal Party duty member of the Legislative Council for New South Wales, Scott MacDonald, on August 6, 2011, on the anniversary of the Hiroshima nuclear attack, in the face of a massive public protest. You can find out more at www.newenglandnuclearenergy.com.au and a video of a visit to the New England Nuclear Energy offices in Glen Innes will be embedded on diffusionradio.com. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now, finally, the voice from someone who isn't in the nuclear industry from the conference asking about nuclear power for Australia. Ian Lowe is Emeritus Professor from the Physics Department of Griffith University and President of the Australian Conservation Foundation. He spoke to me in the lunch break about why nuclear power is not right for Australia and the problems with the way that the uranium mining industry and nuclear power advocates approach the subject. Professor Ian Lowe, you're from which organisation? Well, I'm here as an emeritus professor in the School of Science at Griffith University. It's probably significant that I'm also president of the Australian Conservation Foundation, which is a large environmental NGO. 
I'm tempted to jump right in that some people would see that as, as an interesting juxtaposition of nuclear power and environmental concerns. Well, I only agreed to speak because the conference's title is Nuclear Energy for Australia? Question mark. And it seems to me there are significant questions that need to be asked. And the dominant tenor of the conference is what's been called the deficit model, that uh, technical experts understand nuclear power and know that it's good for us. Uh, the people are stupid and they don't realise that. If only they were educated, they would accept it. And, of course, the point is that... Um, that's uh, oversimplified. There are people with doctoral qualifications in physics, including myself, who don't think nuclear energy makes any sense for Australia. And there are totally uneducated people who think it is. I mean, there are politicians who wouldn't know a neutron from a newt who think we should have nuclear power stations. In fact, uh, a very interesting observation was made at the UNESCO World Congress on Science by Bob May, Lord May of Oxford, former president of the Royal Society, who pointed out that if you look at international comparisons, the countries that are most positive about controversial technologies like nuclear power and genetic engineering are the countries that have the lowest level of scientific literacy. You know, by far the greatest level of support is in the USA, which has, by some margin, the lowest level of science literacy in the world. 30% of people think the Earth and all species were created in six calendar days 6,000 years ago. 25% of people still think the sun goes round the earth and they're very positive about it. In fact, the point is there are legitimate community concerns about the cost of nuclear power, about the timeliness of it as a response to climate change, about the operating risk and about the long-term issues of radioactive waste and misuse of fissile material. These are legitimate concerns and um, what I'm saying this afternoon at the conference is that if people are enthusiastic about promoting nuclear, uh, nuclear energy in Australia, they have to engage with those community concerns and address them rather than dismiss them as the product of ignorance. I think that's a really important issue that these community concerns aren't just to be managed, which is the language I've heard this morning, but to be addressed because it is reasonable to wonder what's going to happen to the waste and if there's any actual technologies that can store it for long periods of time and how long is that? that that's exactly right. I mean, we're talking of, uh, with current nuclear reactors, periods of over 100,000 years. So that's not just a serious technical challenge, it's also a huge social challenge. You know, we're talking about wanting to be confident that your systems are robust for hundreds of times longer than any human civilization has ever endured. So they need not just to be technically robust, but they need to be socially robust. And uh, at the moment, I agree with AMP Capital Investors, who said, in the absence of a proven solution for radioactive waste, the industry is really passing the costs on to future generations. Uh, and not just the next two or three generations, but the next 20 or 30,000 generations. I mean, we're talking about unimaginable periods of time. and. Uh, in that context, my view has been uh, for a long time that nuclear energy should really be the last shot in the locker, that only if it's clear that we can't meet our energy needs by clean technologies should we resort to one that has those long-term problems. Uh, and there are other issues. I mean, one of the points I'm going to make is that uh, I was recently rereading some of the history of what we call World War II, and um, electricity generating capacity, whether coal-fired or hydro, 
were legitimate targets of military action because it impeded your enemy's capacity to produce the weapons of war. Building nuclear power stations uh, presumes that we will have eternal peace, that there will never again be a situation where power generating facilities are legitimate military targets. And uh, unless you really believe that there will never again be armed conflict, it's quite irresponsible to build nuclear power stations. I say this as somebody who, as a young physicist, was quite excited by the prospect of a clean, technically sophisticated energy source replacing coal, which kills and injures thousands of people every year. And when I went to the UK to do a doctorate more than 45 years ago, I accepted a scholarship from the UK Atomic Energy Authority to do my research because it was looking at a physical problem that affects the useful life of fuel elements in nuclear reactors. At the time, I thought nuclear energy was the energy source of the future. And it's only as the problems, particularly waste management and weapons proliferation, but also operating risk, have become apparent uh, that I've moved to the view that it just doesn't make any sense at all for Australia. There are countries like France that now gets three quarters of its energy from nuclear, where it would be physically impossible to do without it on a time scale of less than 20 or 30 years. But at the other extreme, there are countries like Australia and New Zealand that don't have nuclear energy, and I don't think there's any credible case for uh, moving to development. Well, we do have more renewable resources than any other country. Absolutely. I point out to people that the amount of solar energy that hits Australia alone in one summer day alone is about half the total annual energy use. I usually have to repeat that because people can't believe it, that all 7 billion humans in the entire year for all purposes, cooking, heating, lighting, transport, total global annual energy use is only twice the amount of solar energy that hits Australia alone in one summer day alone. The renewable resources are literally tens of thousands of times greater than human energy use. And if you think long term, I think it's inescapable that we have to move away from living off the stored fossil energy uh, to living off the renewable energy flows that we can use without feeling guilty about the legacy we're leaving to our grandchildren. So I've been asked to ask about thorium power. Yes. Thorium is a fuel. Is it any better than uranium or is it got the same sort of issues with waste management and operational danger? Well there are still issues of uh, operational danger and waste management but they are less severe with thorium. It's undoubtedly true that if you built thorium reactors the waste management problem comes down to a few thousand years rather than more than a hundred thousand years. So it's still very long compared with any human civilization, but it's less serious. I mean, my view is that it is technically possible to design and build better reactors, although the industry has been telling us for 40 years that they can design and build better reactors and we're still waiting. I mean, just because they've been consistently wrong for 40 years doesn't mean they'll always be wrong, but it does mean we should be sceptical. I mean, my view is that the renewable technologies are proven and we know we can scale them up. And uh, the Australian electricity market operator recently estimated what it would cost to power Australia totally with renewables by 2030 and it's basically no different from the cost of business as usual. Now it seems to me that really is the last nail in the nuclear coffin that if you can power Australia totally with a mix of renewables why would you start trying to design 
a new and better model of nuclear reactors, which would still have significant problems and uh, we don't know could be scaled up uh, to provide the energy that we need. Well, perhaps if you owned a mine, you'd want to be able to sell things. Well, uh, interestingly, I, mean, I think a lot of the impetus of this comes from the uranium industry and uh, they give the impression that they're a significant earner of export revenue, that they employ a lot of people and they make, make the world a cleaner place. I point out that uranium actually accounts for 0.3% of export revenue, you know, less than tin, uh, that they employ about 0.01% of the workforce. And uh, Australian uranium was in the Fukushima Daiichi reactors, which spread radioactive material over a large area of Japan. So the uranium industry, I think, is trying to rebadge itself as not a grubby commercial operation that's making the world dirty and dangerous, but uh, as the answer to our need for a low-carbon future. But uh, I just don't think that's an acceptable portrayal. If there was a circumstance where, for whatever emergency reasons, we did go nuclear, how long would it take? Because there's, we don't have anybody trained to operate these or build these reactors, and it takes a long time to set them up and start them going. How long does it take if suddenly the government decided and the public was for it? That's a very fair comment. The so-called Switkowski Committee uh, looked at this issue and I don't think anyone could accuse them of being biased against nuclear energy. It was chaired by the then chairman of, of ANSTO, for example, and they concluded it would take at least 10 years, probably 15, to build one nuclear reactor because of the length of time taken to design and build it after you got community approval and the length of time needed to train people both to build and operate a reactor and equally importantly to regulate the industry because we have a nuclear regulator who looks after the use of ionising radiation in uh, medical imaging and in uh, treatments of cancer and in industrial uh, imaging, industrial detection but we don't have a regulator that's equipped to license and monitor the operation of a nuclear power industry. And they said quite rightly that it would take at least five years, probably 10, to expand our current regulatory regime so that you were confident that it could manage a nuclear power industry without risk to the community. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you'd like to mention? I suppose the final thing is that the only reason we're even discussing nuclear energy is that the penny has finally dropped that climate change is a serious issue, uh, despite obfuscation and denial by some politicians and some sections of industry. Uh, if climate change was not an issue, nobody would even be discussing nuclear energy. Um, interestingly, some of those who are now promoting nuclear energy are those who have been most trenchant in their denial of climate change, so they've had to do a, a very rapid about-face. I think it is clear we need to decarbonise our energy supply. Uh, it's also clear, I think, that the first emphasis should be on improving the efficiency of turning energy into the services people want. Amory Lovins famously said, people don't want energy, they want hot showers and cold beer. They want the services that energy provides. And there are, well, the... Howard government's report on energy efficiency 10 years ago said we could reduce our emissions 30% with technology that exists today and is cost effective with a payback time of less than four years. Uh, 
I don't think there's any doubt we could halve our carbon dioxide emissions without affecting our quality of life in any way, just by getting serious about energy efficiency. And uh, the, that should be the key priority, to improve the efficiency of turning energy into services rather than pouring more energy into an inefficient system. Again, somebody said, if you can't fill your sink because the water keeps running out, you don't need a bigger tap, you need a plug. And at the moment, uh, we're heating poorly designed houses, we're using uh, domestic appliances that don't meet international standards for energy efficiency. And just by cleaning up our act, we could dramatically reduce the supply task. And that should be a key priority as well as building cleaner energy supply. And if listeners want to find out more about what you have to say, is there a website they should look for your writing online? Um, the ACF website, Australian Conservation Foundation, has uh, some of my recent writings. There's also on this specific issue, there's a little paperback book uh, called Why Versus Why Nuclear Power, which is a so-called flip book. It doesn't have a back cover, it has two front covers. And I jointly wrote it with Professor Barry Brook from the University of Adelaide, who thinks we should build nuclear power. And it's interesting because if you start from his side, you get his case and me saying why I think he's wrong. And if you turn it over, you get my case and him saying why he thinks I'm wrong. So uh, listeners can get both sides of the story by two passionate and well-informed advocates and uh, make up their own mind. Because the one thing I agree with the organisers of this conference about is that we should have an informed public debate about energy issues rather than it being decided uh, on nothing more substantial than a gin and tonic or two. Terrific. Well, Professor Ian Lowe, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure. That was Emeritus Professor Ian Lowe, President of the Australian Conservation Foundation, reminding us that there is a question mark at the end of the name of the conference and of the need for serious discussion that is respectful of both sides of the question about whether Australia needs nuclear power, separating newts from neutrons. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.